Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast. I am really excited today to have on Dr. Kevin Burkhopes. I was introduced to him three years ago, and I have been excited to work alongside him. Matter of fact, when we were first introduced, uh, the person that it was introducing us was shocked that we hadn't been working for years before. Uh, I've come across a lot of people, but uh, Kevin is in that rarefied air of a lot of times the project that he's talking about what he's wanting to start, he's already started it really two weeks ago. He is a master at collaborating with people uh, and he is a master on getting things going without having to take credit for it. Um, he is working with students that need the most and he has this uncanny knack of not really listening to the naysayers but charging ahead. Um, I did this interview from his office in Indianapolis and it was just fun because I was there for about 30 minutes and I was listening to some of the conversations that starting to listen to some of the hurdles that they were up against and they just confidently know how to go about things in a, in a manner that I, I think needs to be replicated. His idea of learning commons, his plans about his future schools is just staggering. And I've been lucky and blessed enough to, to in the last three years get to know him. And this interview that you're about to hear actually rekindled uh, the wait. Why aren't we working more closely together? So I'm excited that I'm working a lot more uh, with Kevin and Crossroads Education uh, just to bring as much value as we can to students. So for these reasons, you should really give Kevin a follow and uh, check out his work. Other than that, I know you're going to enjoy this one. If you would do me the favor of sharing it, that would mean the world to me. All right, let's dig in. Enjoy this one, Dr. Kevin Burkhopes. All right, I have looked forward to this interview for quite some time. I am with Kevin Burkhopes of Crossroads Education, among other things. Kevin, I can't doing? wait to ruin your expectations. <laughs> the great thing is, is that I got to sit in on the meeting and I just heard... Uh, let's just get right into it. I've seen you in action. I've seen your learning commons in action. Um, there, I have like a top five list of people that I admire that get things done quietly. And there's also sometimes there's a rub on people that are very loud. And I, when I look under the hood, they haven't really done a lot. So you're on the opposite end of that spectrum. Uh, like I've again, before we get into crossroads education and everything else. Um, the I just want to get this off so it doesn't sound like I'm pandering the rest of the episode. Um, <laughs> but the work you're doing at a university level, and then now you saw the 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 genius behind it, and and that you're starting to do things at the high school level and middle school level, uh, is just extraordinary. So before we make this the mutual benefit, you know, admiration society, let me let me go right into. I just want to get that out of the way. Like I really enjoy what you're doing. Uh, without. God, this sounds like I'm just groveling. But uh, anyway, <laughs> congratulations on your success. But let's get it right into it. Crossroads okay. Education. So what do we do? Yeah. How do we do it? So we, we've distilled that down uh, because we did see the opportunity, right? So um, started at the university level where we proved that you don't necessarily need a PhD in the room to learn something, right? So we had 158 undergraduates teaching 42 math classes to each other, and we were doing 600 visits a day. And then we started asking could you do this in a high school? That was 2017. So we proved it at the university. We proved the outcomes. We proved that kids were learning more and had things like joy and hope and belonging, things that I care about. Um, and math didn't scare them anymore because we were mostly focused on mathematics at that point. 
And then we got our first high school in 2017. Um, now we're in 15 schools across the state, and we have as young as eight-year-olds teaching. Now, when I say teaching, here's, here's what we do. Um, if you do sort of a quick logistical question, are we asking too much of our classroom teachers? Uh, the answer is yes. We're asking them to do about 90 hours of work a week, um, and they're already underpaid to do 40. So if that's true, then paying them more is not going to help. I'll, I'll throw that out there. Uh, we're asking them to do something that's uh, logistically impossible, which is two to three years behind. Kids that are that far behind are sitting in the same class with kids that are accelerated and sitting in the same class with people that are on, on pace. And we're asking them to teach, by law, the content of that age group. Um, so if we're going to bring them help, what's a scalable, affordable workforce that could be in every school? Well, students are already in every school. So there's your workforce. Uh, they are scalable because they're already out there. They're affordable because young people will take 100 bucks a week and love it. Mm -hmm. um, they are uh, highly capable, and we underestimate them constantly. And uh, I think you probably agree with the underestimation of young people that happens at scale. <laughs> okay, full stop. So <laughs> we, we glossed over something. You said you said something about $100, and you said something about basically a child workforce, right? So I'm hearing some skeptics go, wait, wait, what? Is he suggesting that some of the students pitch in and teach? And your answer is? So it is... It By is... the way, you can't say hell yeah loud enough on this one. <laughs> Uh, it is true that I hear that pushback, right? So I've been told by a lot of really great lawyers that you can't pay kids younger than 14 uh, by some really fantastic laws. That's, that's awesome. Yes, they should be teaching all day, every day. They should be helping. They should be serving each other. The shortest path to joy is serving others. Teaching is the easiest way to accomplish that on a daily basis. Yeah, and let's just also get it off that, like, duh, that when you teach things, you understand it deeper as well. So You learn a ton better, faster, more complete. You connect more neurons. I mean, we can go deep there, right? So the idea of unpacking for a novice um, is what teaching is. If you do that, you know your content better. <laughs> I just love it when I can talk to people and go, I know, right? And then also just... Like state the obvious. This is this is common sense. I don't think anything that we do is brilliant. If 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 it's pragmatic and practical, the only thing shocking about it <laughs> is that you and that's why I said like hard stop. You said paying them. Okay, so a fourteen year old. And by the way, again, there's gonna be a lot of people that go, well, damn, this is just common sense. Yes, like so. You're saying that if there's a couple of fourteen year olds in a class and they're like, I've got this stuff down. I can volunteer my study hall and go to a learning commons, earn some A, cash, B, help my friends, and C, deeply understand it because I'm reteaching it. Yeah, I, I, again, practical, right? So uh, it floors me that people don't understand. I, I hear from principals all the time, they're like, well, my, my kids can't teach. I'm like, okay, well, that's a problem. Let's start there, right? Like, you're underestimating your own kids. And if you tell them they're incapable, uh, they're going to live up to that. Uh, and, and yet, let me, let me push back. And for the person that's going to say that, you're like, okay, so ask your kids how you start an account on YouTube. Yeah. Can your kids teach now? Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they're, they're going to do things that we, we as adults are not capable. So when I hear like push down from the top that we have to get teachers more informed on technology and more informed on you know software development and coding and all these different things, I'm like, 
Yeah, no, you're never going to catch up with what an eight-year-old already knows about software and technology that they were born with. <laughs> and you old, uh, I'm, I'm going to call myself old for a second. So I'm 38 years old. I've got an eight-year-old. She knows more about how to use YouTube as a resource than I do. Right. Because she grew up with it. Yep. And so I don't, I don't need to invest time and energy into uh, understanding this thing more and more and more so that I'm the one that's pontificating to kids. Let them teach each other. It shares knowledge that quick. Right. They're already capable of doing it. Um, let them be a part of that ecosystem instead of rendering them uh, into sort of passive learners and, and uh, you know, sitting idle all day long for eight hours. Like what a waste of quality uh, impactful people in our society well and what i'm hearing even more is like that sense of purpose if you have a talent and all of a sudden you're rewarded for it in the school building that normally doesn't reward you for things that you're talented for i mean i i'm one of the things that keeps me up at night is the lack of purpose just you know i see a lot of kids infinite scrolling through life and and this is a a learning commons area is a way for throw out money aside. It's a time for them to have purpose. Yeah, purpose, hope. Um, so the the idea that we build schools around and cherish athletics. Well, there's only about ten percent of kids that participate in athletics. <laughs> so I get I get how we've done that over the last hundred and hundred and fifty years. We've built these huge megaplexes. We've spent tens of millions of dollars on a football field. Like, I don't have a problem with sport. I have a problem with only 10% of kids get to feel what it's like to be a part of a team and, mm. you know, compete and have logic and then feel value for their contribution to a greater cause. Like, we could do that at scale by having kids teach and uh, not to mention other types of things like e-gaming and e-sports. Like, that's a whole new world that we're going to start building into schools because people don't understand quite yet that um, knowledge has been democratized yeah. by the internet. Yeah. And they can know when a teacher is full of it pretty quickly because all they got to do is Google it. Yeah. So what we're, we're sort of pushing in, in terms of what we're doing is uh, hope and belonging and joy all come from the act of teaching. And everyone can do that. And even better, they should be taught that when you're really good at something, it's, it's meant to be shared and that you should be proud of sharing rather than being proud of just owning something, right? Like a talent. That, that creates a toxic environment amongst humans when we think our talent is something that we have to hold tight to. We think teaching is sort of the, the shortest pathway to these intangibles uh, about how to be a productive and, and good person. So many thoughts are swimming into my head. I mean, like, obviously, there's some cultures that are, that are founded on this and thinking a lot of, especially um, Japanese culture, that it's almost your duty yeah. that, you know, if you've got a knowledge set, it's your duty to pass on these traits and, and to, to pitch in and help. Uh, but I, I just keep going back to that. You know, what we do at Started Up Foundation is a lot of times it's just that do, do you have purpose? Do you have meaning? What does that mean? And, and, when, and my heart was full when you said 10% of our kids get to experience teamwork and success at that nature. And, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I played sports when I was a kid. wasn't great. Um, but providing more opportunities for students to have that belonging, have that sense of teamwork, and then maybe even look at the, the kid that's trying to pass and, and, and stay on that team. Like, hey, you see that kid out there playing? Yeah. 
I'm the one that got him on the field. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just I think that would be so cool. Well, yeah, I, I think so. I think this will resonate with you, but let me let me try. So when I ask people about their kids, right? You were telling me that uh, you have this like empty nest syndrome going on with your your uh, Ava. Yeah. Just left. Yeah. So when we think about our own kids, then you use the word parent. And then when I ask about joy and uh, fulfillment and belonging and hope, you say, well, yeah, I want that for my kids. Right. Okay. So I think of parenting slightly different than most maybe, um, but I think that the parallels are easy here. So I think that teachers and other people that I share my children with, I've got an eight, five and three year old, uh, are helping raise them. Mm -hmm. So school has them for 40% of their awake life. Right. That's parenting at scale for 40% of that kid's awake life. Yep. They're helping raise them. Schools are not held accountable for the things that we parents profess to care about, like hope, joy, and, and all of these things. We don't even measure it. Yeah. So performance at school is about passing standardized tests and math and other things. Uh, shouldn't we care more about them being joyful and well-lived and engaged and uh, things like gratitude? Gratitude is something you have to learn. Like we got to teach yes. that, yeah. right? Uh, so we we don't do that, and when yeah. and then we don't talk about the fact that we're sharing kids with parents, um, and that we need to really start to to rethink how our metrics of of society and accountability for education. Like it's not a place that you dump kids for seven hours a day mm. and get like free babysitting. Like yeah, it, education we now know can be much, much more fulfilling in terms of your ability to have a well-lived life. We're just not talking that way yet. Can I build on top of that? Yeah, please. <laughs> Could we also not pretend that we're like, oh, they're out the door, good. Well, so I, I want to see my kids success. Like, my greatest joy as a teacher, and I'm going to try not to get emotional on talking about this, but like, my greatest joy in being their teacher is going to their weddings. Yeah, it's cool. Going and seeing their first raise uh, and, and celebrating that, or, or in some cases, my greatest fear is not the ultimate fear is them ending their life too soon, and that has been, you know, has happened a few times that I hate. But like, when a school is like, okay, they graduated, our numbers good, bye. Like, yeah. I don't think like ninety percent of the teachers, ninety nine percent of teachers I know are like they're still interested. But if the if the only data point is like they graduated and and we're good hey maybe we should start looking at some more long-term data collection of how are you five years later yeah. did we have an impact did we help what didn't we help with what have you seen in your workforce we could have done a better job of that'd be nice i i, I love that so i i was talking to a local superintendent and they profess that 98% of their students graduate and that they go on to college at a record you know, level for the types of communities that they serve. And I was like, great. Did you know that only about 30% of people in Indiana that start college ever finish at the end of six years? Like, so you're sending a whole bunch of kids to college and they're racking up debt and not finishing. Oh. How much do you know of your kids that persist in all these other things? And, and this is a, a person that's friendly with me. Uh, but they were like, we have no idea. We yeah. don't even collect that data. And, and I wasn't attacking them. I was just sort of unearthing this thing of, okay, you, you push them out, right? When they're done after that 12th grade, what about 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th grades, right? The K-16 thing. 
Um, what about sticking with them for a couple of years? What about, um, you know, you've, you've sort of built this model around the idea that when I'm done with high school, thank God, I never want to go back to <laughs> out that Out of sight, out of mind, like, right. That's crazy. Yeah. Like, you just spent your entire adolescent life, likely, in, a, in that system from five years old until 18 years old, and when you're done, you just, like, you hate it and I'm out? It uh, doesn't make any sense. Well, I opening up a can of worms, I was once having this conversation with a guy that's doing a documentary, and I started making this parallel between um, basically loan-to-value mortgages and education. So in the mortgage industry, an 80% LTV is pretty top-end. Therefore, you know, if, let's just do simple math. You have a $10,000 home they're not going to give you a loan for 10000 They'll give you a loan for 8000 Well, that's correct. In education, we tend to like, yeah, rack it up, man, and worry about it later. The schools need to collect data on, did you finish? Where did we go wrong? Why did you drop out? Why did you change your major three times? Um, what could we have done better? But if there's no accountability and, there, and anybody can get a loan for everything, and this also opens up to a deeper discussion. Like if, and, and don't get me wrong, I think that the teacher crisis, teacher shortage crisis is real. But if people want to go into education, should they be going to private colleges? Should, should they be racking up? I mean, like if your LTV is negative 180%, so people, so this person was talking to me like, well, then no one would go into education. I said, okay, then maybe that sparks a dialogue that certain degrees should have certain prices. If you're going to be a chemical engineer, I understand in a lot of cases the current price. But if you're going to be a social worker, there needs to be some sort of guidance or somebody needs to disrupt the model of, hey, we're, we're going to discount this because you're doing the Lord's work. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a really good I've not heard it conceptualized that way, sort of an LTV style, but uh, I do agree. I think we also have made the mistake that to be a great teacher, um, so we, we set up classrooms, right? And then we set up curriculum, and then we have this requirement of equitably putting a knowledgeable person in front of all of these kids. <laughs> That's never worked, ever. Uh, I have school districts that are clients who haven't hired a licensed teacher in five years. They don't even apply. Right. This is happening in our state right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, a school of ed is supposedly preparing you know, thousands of new teachers, right? But they don't stay past two to three, five years. And it's because the job that they're doing is impossible. They lose hope, they leave. Like losing hope means that you have a goal that you really care about. And you can't see how you can obtain that goal. Yeah. And I think that's wrecking our teachers. Uh, I think schools of ed are never going to fix this problem. We need, we need apprenticeships, right? We need this idea of teaching. Like if you decide on Tuesday that you want to be a teacher, Wednesday you should be working with kids. Because you're going to figure out that you don't know anything about working with kids, even if you know a lot of content. It doesn't matter. Like you need to be really fast into this, like, tutor. Start tutoring, start working with kids, start talking about content, start figuring out what teaching is um, almost immediately. And our schools of ed are not doing that. So it's funny. I, this morning, met with a former student who's trying to do his own thing and do work uh, in Africa. And then also listening to your brainstorm today with your team, 
one of the things that's really hard is when you're trying to introduce different ways of thinking into a system that still hasn't changed. Like my biggest rebel, like on the innovation class, I fought this battle of, I had some of my good students that had A's and B's and they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, just tell me what to do to get an A. And then my C and D students were like, I'm going to go out. Like a lot of times my C and D students were my best innovators. Mm -hmm. And then you had the F student that they, in theory, liked and believed what the class was doing, but their work ethic was gone. Right? And that thus the F. I think that the work that truly innovative people are trying to do, it's so difficult because that culture is still the same. You know, here we are talking about learning commons and the kids are learning on their on their time. They're starting to identify their strengths. And yet when they are traditionally assessed, it's in a way that may not jive with them anymore. Yeah. And so therefore, like, what is success? I saw a, I saw a charter school and and by the way, don't ugh. when I talk about charter schools sometimes when I get my emails, but I saw a charter school that was doing good work and they were doing things that are pushing the kids out into the community and doing things, but their standardized test scores were marginally better and they got lambasted. And I'm like, but wait, we started talking about this stuff's important and not as much as this. Choose a side. We talk about schools that we admire overseas. And, and, and it drives me nuts because are, are we, we're all in agreement. Just standardized testing for the sake of standardized testing is folly. And yet when we get upset that we're falling behind, falling behind where? Well, in some of these scores. I'm like, Gee, just choose a side, man. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I, so and, assessing based on things that, that increase uh, happiness and joy, we call those engagement metrics. Mm -hmm. So the reason we use the word engagement is because if students are more engaged and it doesn't matter what they're concentrating on or what their content area is, if they're more engaged with it, learning goes up. Yeah. So if we can prove that engagement metrics are happening and that there's a, a recurring intensity that's higher and higher, then the learning will take care of itself. Mm. But we have to prove that at scale because everybody goes, hey, um, we got to assess these schools because somebody in Backwoods somewhere maybe isn't doing a good job. So we got to have this as a state, right? And the federal uh, regulations are now by law requiring us to do this. But nobody's come up with a better system for assessing other than throwing out a you know, $49 million test or whatever it costs in Indiana every year. Um, so we have to create that better system and we have to be three times better than the original one. And the original one doesn't have any accountability, which is why innovation is so hard. You, you have to be three times better than another system that just persists yeah. and doesn't do anything else. And we fight that constantly of, well, where's the proof that your product works? I'm like, well, um, the only thing that we definitively know is that the traditional education system isn't working. Right. Um, what we're doing is pragmatic, practical, and affordable, and it is working. Here's the data. And then we still get pushback. Right. Right. So, and then you get... Also, uh, when you become a threat, I'm sure you have no idea what this means in your life. Uh, <laughs> um, as soon as you start threatening a traditional system, you're, th you're threatening the way of life of a significant amount of people that are attached to that system only yeah. because yeah. that's how they've made their money, yeah. right? That's, that's a, a job. It's an a, a occupation. It's a, maybe I've made a business of tutoring kids and SAT scores. If you say SATs are obsolete, my business goes out, right? right? So as soon as you become a threat with innovation, you're going to be hated. Yeah. And it's miserable. Uh-huh. 
I'm, I can't believe you actually empathize with that. That's shocking uh, to me. <laughs> well, it, here's, here's the one thing I learned. I, I went to a really great, almost like think tank, um, Gov City. Uh, shout out to Molly Kane. She invited me, and it was really a lot of government people and high levels of, of intelligence on the innovation side. And sometimes we chuckle, we're like innovation and government. But this one guy that I was talking to, he was doing work out of the Pentagon. He's like, however, there is a catch-22 with this. He's like, we're so resilient. He's like, yes, innovation is slow, but taking some of those risks is, it has to be vetted out a lot to what you're saying. The hard part is, is that when is enough or when is that tipping point? Um, I've seen time and time again, really great things get shot down because you know, they couldn't prove that it was good for all things. Well, okay. And then I, I don't really like to quote Gary Vee in education, but he was like, eventually it'll just collapse on itself. And, and, and it'll have to start over from scratch. And I think that with, you know, the six D's of, uh, you know, digitalization, democratization, all these things that are coming, I think a lot of parents are going to start choosing um, a lot of digital learning. Here's the only thing I don't like about that. And here's why I like your model so much better. I don't like online learning solo. No. People long to be together. I don't like just getting all of your, you know, like my son, uh, full disclosure, my son struggles because he would much rather watch YouTube science specials. And then science class is kind of a, not as engaging for him. But I'm like, but Grant, that's where your friends are. And you can collaborate. To which he's like, there's not really a lot of collaboration going on. Yeah, we don't on. talk to each other. We sit in rows. Right. That's interesting. Um, I agree completely. I don't think it's true, and, and I've, I've had to be careful with this, so I think ed tech and YouTube and other things are tools. You preach. Keep so going. So if, if, and, and I, I learned this through failure, right? So early on, I created some software that I thought would be equitable and scalable for this idea of access to high quality, like math instruction and, and things like that. It failed. And the reason it failed is the reason that EdTech period is failing, which is um, it only gets about 20% immersion. There's no adoption rate and, and continuous like use mm. because there's nobody on site that's teaching you how to use that product continuously. And it forgets the fact that what every human being longs for is connection to other human beings. So the best way to learn is by being connected. When you're connected to each other in a physical way, like I'm sitting here with you right now, that connection is what we long for. That's where learning happens. All the tech is tools that we use to engage that environment in more productive ways. We don't just have a book anymore, right? A book could be written by one person and then everybody believes what's in that book because it's, uh, it's the only access to knowledge that we have. The internet has democratized all of that. We can use resources yeah. and each other to learn whatever we want. And I don't have to trust you to be the only conduit of that knowledge anymore. And that's why we believe that peer tutoring, peer education is so powerful and is the future augmented by tech. That's, that's where we stand. I can only count one other time that I had to have time to think about that. That was maybe the best answer in 400 episodes I've ever had. Uh, I hope a lot of ed tech companies listen to this and reach out to you because, man, you're right. Um, I, I, 
I, I struggle sometimes because I think that there are some cool ed tech tools out there, but sometimes a cool tool for the sake of cool tool doesn't really lead you. No, I can't hand you something that you don't know how to use, right? right. I always use this skilled trades metaphor, like this, this shovel is the best at removing nails for uh, doing roofing, right? Because I'm a background in, in uh, working with my hands and my back. I can't hand that to you and say, this is the best shovel you will ever use right. and then not teach you how to use it, mentor you through using it. Right. You can't do any of that. EdTech has made that mistake from the beginning because everybody's like, scalable. I can get this in every school. Uh, sure. 74 million students in the US. Right. Think about the, yeah. the SaaS license, right? And then you get 20% adoption and it dies as soon as somebody makes a different choice because they never knew how to use the tool. Right. We, did build the learning commons on the platform that I have somebody on site at every school that can teach your tool. If you work with us as partners, we can have our training to where you can get full adoption and immersion of your product, ed company, whatever, because I have on site people and I've proved that you can work in a school as a vendor. That took a heavy lift to figure yeah, that out. I can't imagine. <laughs> uh, uh, let me ask you this then. Um, Going back to resiliency, you know, the guy that's talking to me about the military, the reason why change comes slow is like, he says, we could survive cyber attacks and God forbid, like physical attacks like 9-11 every other day. And our government would sustain because we have built in resiliency and, and processes and structures. Same could be said a lot for education. The hard part is, is that when you want to do something radically different, some people have like cried out, but you're messing with that child's life that year. You're you're doing an experiment and it's okay to do AB testing, not with children, but when you're doing AB you know, testing with children, uh, please argue that it is the right time to start doing things differently, that it's not a risk to not take a risk. All right, so the level of pain on your face right now is the best I've seen. <laughs> uh, all right, so you and I are the generation that are going to build the roads and bridges for the new education. We are skilled tradesmen. We are not going to change society. We have to build the roads and bridges now. Our kids and our kids' kids will be the ones that get the benefit of recreation of that society. So we have to own that that's our job. So when I'm doing what I'm doing now, I'm thinking about I'm paving roads that used to be cobblestone. I am building bridges that used to be made of wood and I'm making them out of something else. So I don't think unless, uh, let me say that differently. So unless I think that way, then, you know, I can't say the things that I'm about to say. So... Um, we have schools everywhere right now where we are experimenting with kids' lives because we put them in a classroom with somebody that's a long-term sub, has never been trained to do anything. Just because you can control that a kid is in a classroom called math doesn't mean they're learning it equitably. Just because you can control that they're at a school that is funded by the state doesn't mean that anything that's going on there is super successful towards this goal and this mission. We've sort of convinced ourselves that at least inadequacy is good enough and let's not try to strive for something better. That's crazy. So we have a, a system built on a completely false assumption that we can provide equitable education when the conduit for knowledge passes through an adult. 
that will be willing to go to 25th and MLK and work with 99% students that come from poverty. Like, that will never be equitable, ever. And we've proven that for at least 80 to 100 years. That's the longest standing research project ever that this is a failure. So why is the time now? I believe that the time is now because we are getting to the point where technology has caught up. High-speed internet now can basically democratize all knowledge. We have learned that streaming and watching how people think that you can learn a lot from. Uh, take a note from the e-gaming network, right? Um, you want to be better at something you can be. You have to choose that, and we have to teach that drive and civilization sort of approach, right? And we also know now that we could focus for the first time because of how much we've learned about people's brains and how they work, that we actually know how to create mindful and joyful and um, really kind human beings. Whereas before, it's like you're kind if that's like a trait you have. No, we can actually teach that. And we can teach these things about how to be uh, a well-lived human. Whereas before, no one even talked about that. Now, for the first time, they're starting to. And books like Awakening Joy and other things that have started to come out. Like, this stuff's important. And our society, as we move forward, you and I are not going to get to live in this world. So we got to build the bridge to it. Our kids probably get a good shot. Their kids, if we did our job, will benefit. And then we're on to something. I love that. I, I, um, I'm going to back it up with two things. Um, one is a hope and the other one is a fear. Uh, I had the pleasure. I don't get starstruck. I don't really like celebrities. But uh, hearing Mike Rowe speak, uh, it was funny because he opened up on the fact that uh, we started going wrong when industrial arts teachers all of a sudden started getting replaced and let's put them in. And I, I, I talked to him afterwards. I'm like, my dad lived that. My dad was a shop teacher. And then by some cruel fate, they put him in the guidance department where they started to have him gently shepherd kids away from what he thought was one of the most important parts of school. And so I, Mike then gave him an extra book. Anyway, great guy. But his one of his points at the end was... The reason why he did Dirty Jobs is, he says, the importance of storytelling is paramount. Kids don't see themselves in two certain situations until they see themselves. The story we've always been told is like, well, this place sucks and I'm always going to be here. Untrue. This is why stories of inspiration and hope need to be more prevalent. There's also a, a reason why that NBC's making a difference is the last section of the news, not the first, right? No, 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 no disrespect to NBC. Um, so storytelling, storytelling, storytelling is, I think, hugely important. The, this, the, the success we're seeing in these micro batches don't have to be microed if you start showing them. That's my hope. More storytelling of success and pockets of success. My fear is um, with the new age of great options for social media and entertainment, uh, I have also seen a huge conversely I've seen a huge uptick in some creativity but I've seen an unbelievably downtick in the sense that I've seen a lot of kids just parrot and mimic uh, the trends I, I think the time is now there's never been a better time to be a teenager that has purpose because of the options of social media YouTube especially um, but getting them in these right environments is going to be a lot better than just doing the same 30-second dance move that you see on, on TikTok or trying to be Casey when Casey's already been Casey for the last 10 years. 
creativity, empathy, joy, these things that you guys are starting to put in the, the learning commons, I think could be the new creative outlet. And, uh, yeah, I started off the, uh, the podcast pandering to you and I'm ending it, <laughs> yeah. but like, man, I, I hope that you guys keep going. I hope that you guys keep storytelling. Um, because I have not, I, there's only been a handful of people in education that when I'm around, I'm like, wait, you're on something, not a, not a cool tool that might last a year, but like, wait, you're onto something. And, and I mean this in the nicest way that also isn't led by a cult of personality. You got a great personality and all that good for you. But like <laughs> your model, I've seen it and I'm like, this makes a lot of sense. And my hope is, is that people that are starting to look at it through the lens of a current environment can understand how far ahead this is. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll push this forward. Yeah. We're not going to stop. We'll, uh, We'll keep pushing forward. Uh, I had a conversation this morning about that same question. Um, it's not about me. It's not about my personality. It's we've created something that's practical, uh, and people find joy in it. And I think that's something that will scale. So I'm hoping that people are listening to this and going, "Damn, uh, where can they find more information?" Best place to find information about what we're doing is is go to our website. But contact me, right? So if you really feel like this is something that you want in your school, you want in your community, you want your kids experiencing, you're the one that is going to cause it to be there, right? Tell me, do you want to be, you want this in Noblesville? You want this in Elkhart? You want this everywhere? Great. So do we. But it's going to be the demand of the community to, to push this through. And uh, I mean, we're already scaling. We're, we're going to be in 40 schools by August. So we know where we are at now and we know where it can go and it's really going to be dependent on people that are listening to to drive this there it is get a hold of them oh linkedin email yeah any of those work all right um there's one kevin burkhopes in the world i got the the benefit of having a last name that's very unusual so if you google me it's it's going to be me good and bad Okay. Well, we will also have that in the show notes and everything else. So I highly recommend you reach out, take a, take a look at what they're doing. It's uh, pretty amazing. Kevin, as always, appreciate your time. Appreciate you pouring in your energy and, and time to the podcast and all you're doing for Ed. Yeah, man. Thanks for hanging out.